I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. The early days of the internet were very different than what we have today. The internet was primarily accessible only to people in academia or the government. Mitchell Baker, co-founder and chairwoman of Mozilla, explained how the internet evolved and made its way to consumers. At the time, Mitchell was working on Netscape, which was the dominant browser for consumers. We talked about the browser wars and how Microsoft later dominated with Internet Explorer. Mitchell also explained why the code for Netscape was released as open source and the impact this had on how the internet is today. I'm here at Mozilla with Mitchell Baker, co-founder, chairwoman at Mozilla Foundation and Mozilla Corporation. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you. One of the main software products that Mozilla is known for is for their browser Firefox, which is also known as Mozilla Firefox. You've been at the forefront since the early days of the internet and browsers back in the 90s. The panorama was very different than what we have right now. Can you describe what the early days of the internet looked like for those people that aren't familiar with that? My pleasure. Maybe I'll start even before the internet, so you know that what it felt like, what we were coming from. And before the internet had some similarities to today. There were two companies. One was successful, one was not. <laughs> But there were, only, there were two companies. You got your computer from one of two companies. One was Microsoft, and something like 97% of all the people in the world got their computer from Microsoft, and 3% from Apple. So in that phase, Apple was the company that lost. And much like today, Your choice of the computer, or your phone today, determined the operating system and the software and the pricing structure for all the apps that would, you would use. And it determined of a fair amount of your experience. And the questions of, well, I'm in one stack. In those days, I'm living in Microsoft and you're in Apple. It would all be very awkward. And so, in a way, it was even more controlled than today. Because today, you have Google and Apple, and they're more equal than 97%. And you have Amazon, which is different, and you have Facebook and the social media. So there is some sort of form of competition. But in that era, that's not true. All of those things were one company. Microsoft owned the operating system. It owned the equivalent of the apps that you used, and it owned the equivalent of the server-side compute power and products that many of us rely on Amazon. I don't mean the retail part of Amazon, but the developer services. So that was all one company. So the system was extremely locked down. Limitation, I mean, innovation was rare. And in that era, you paid for everything. You, know, you, you bought a, a computer and it had an operating system on it, but everything else you bought. So the equivalent of every app, and they were expensive. You know, many of them were $99, some were $79, but it wasn't $2 or $3 for something. So that's the world we came out of. And suddenly, the consumer internet appeared. And in those days, we called a World Wide Web. And that's why when you have a link, it starts with www, World Wide Web. And so technically, the World Wide Web is sometimes viewed as the graphical interface layer on top of the internet. And we still use much of it today. But when it first appeared, we all used the web. And there was one way to get to it, and that was through a browser. 
and the web, what we would call the consumer internet today, was exciting for a bunch of different reasons. For one, it was actually open. It wasn't owned by one company. Two, you could see a lot of what made it work. The protocol was open, and it was also an open specification, and the early implementations were open as an open source. And all of that was unheard of in that era. So in that era, we didn't have open source software that was well-known. Developers didn't all live and work in open source software. You didn't have open government. You didn't have open data. You didn't have open science. You didn't really have open anything. All of that came out of the open source movement. And so the World Wide Web was the first time most human beings could see that. And so it, it was an open protocol built on the open internet protocols. It was an open specification. When you looked at the first browser, there was something called view source. And so it was very simple then. Anybody, you could just see how it was made and copy and paste and make your own. And because it was this open protocol, if you or someone you knew was technical enough to set up a server, boom, you know, you could connect. You need an ISP, but you didn't need permission to be able to connect, you, you didn't need to have a business arrangement about the technology you use, you didn't need to agree to someone else on the content, and you didn't need to pay somebody to be able to deliver the content you wanted. And the other piece that was wildly exciting was you could get to anyone. Right? If I had content and I put it on the World Wide Web and you had a browser and you wanted to see it, you could get to it, unlike you know the businesses that sit in between us now. And so we went from a system that was even more limited and, than we have today and where innovation, this sounds melodramatic, but true, innovation was really in large part controlled by what was good for one single company to a system that had this immense ability for people to actually join in and make something that you wanted. And so I've heard that system called the architecture of participation, which is a phrase that took me a little while to understand, but there were many ways for the bulk of humanity to actually do something <laughs> beyond, you know, get a browser and, and read, or in those days it was all text, but also to actually create. And so we started moving into a space of sort of that had all sorts of new things. So all of a sudden, like the network appeared, first of all, the internet, which is so powerful, right? We rely on it for everything today, but it just appeared and it was really open. And so you could adopt it or try something new or build something new. So for example, when it appeared, it was all tech, text and links. And one day, some of the technical folks said, well, why don't we add audio? So we did. And suddenly it went from being text and links to being able to have audio. And then we made a video tag so you could have video. Never intended, I mean, never really thought of by the early designers. We didn't need to go ask some big company and pay them or see if it fit their business model to be able to bring voice in, in, into the network. And so it was a wildly exciting sense of just new ways to solve problems. And I would say we were quite idealistic in the kinds of problems that would get solved. So, and still today, if you see someone the first time, you know, they get online, often today it's someone with a phone, and often online means Facebook, doesn't mean the breadth of that. But even so, whatever it is, how much it changes. And so it was that immense sense of change and possibility and the ability to collaborate and do new things. One of the main things you mentioned is that it used to be a very locked down, controlled by one or two companies. But then you mentioned the web happens and it's open. How was this possible? Can you give some context on, you know, why was there something open if we didn't really have anything? How did that came to be for those that, that aren't familiar? 
Yes. Well, uh, sometimes a new form of technology allows, we see it with the internet. You know, you get something that's new enough and different enough, and suddenly you can take action without having to go through the old gatekeeper or the old business. And so the internet or the network is one such thing. Because it didn't really get started in a company or anything. Yes, that's right. Actually, much of the early research was done by government. You know, sometimes I hear people say, oh, the government doesn't do anything. It never in- innovates. In fact, I heard this at the well-known code conference, you know, that Kara Swisher runs with someone on stage saying, well, the government never does anything. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, what about the internet? But And also then in academic circles. And the World Wide Web came out of, a, a you know, the, the CERN physics lab, which again was not a business trying to create money. So... Yeah, that's a really interesting point, that the innovation, it did not come out of the existing business model. And in fact, it, it didn't come out of a business model at all. Okay. And so that had a bunch of possibilities. And then, of course, uh, certainly some of our optimism is tempered with kind of new understanding today, I'd say. I want to talk a bit about the browsers through those times, because I think it's a, an interesting story. Like I mentioned earlier, Mozilla is well known for Firefox, the browser, but prior to that, we had Netscape, Netscape Navigator. Can you give some context on this? Oh, sure. So the World Wide Web was created you know, at, at CERN for the physicists there. And then there were a set of students, actually, who realized, ah, we could make the called the client-side software. We could make a graphical interface that was useful. And so that was the first browser. And those students got connected with an entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley who had built one immensely successful company already. And so they formed Netscape. Its original name was Mosaic, but it became it was renamed and became known as Netscape Communicator. And must have been maybe four months later, I think I joined. And at that point, the internet existed. And if you were a grad student in a technical field, you might be using it via a command line interface. So the internet layers were there, only a piece of what we think of as the internet today, but the underlying protocols and the ability to deliver information in this packet-based system and so on, that was there. And so if you happen to be in fields close enough to it, you could engage with it. And early on, academics and graduate students would exchange information and data. So it existed. And then what the browser did was it made all that power more accessible to us by using the graphic user interface and making it easy to, to um, you know, click on a link and, and get to the information that was already there. More intuitive. Yes, much more accessible. And so Netscape created the first browser for the commercial sort of distribution to general consumers. There had been the earlier browser also called Mosaic, built by these students. And so it was in some use. I was at the time working at another company called Sun Microsystems. And, uh, you know, I already used a browser every day before Netscape, but, you know, I lived here and that was my world, living and working with technologists in the technology world. So Netscape made a browser and released it to the general public. And that was the first time the consumer internet was actually available to consumers. So it was a crazy moment. It was explosive. In its day, I think the Netscape growth or its IPO was the largest ever in its day, you know, dwarfed since then, you know, as the dollars have gone up. But to show what it was actually like in the moment, because once you saw what was possible, people ran towards it. And so the early years at Netscape were the classic, really being overwhelmed. You know, as many minutes in a day as you could keep your eyes open and try and 
work as hard as you could. It was never enough. And so began to have businesses adopting it and websites sprouting like crazy and people trying new ideas and like, oh, let's try audio or let's try video. And uh, at that time, the browser was the universal client. Didn't matter where you wanted to go or what you wanted to do, you would use a browser. You still had an operating system on your computer or your laptop, but everything was through the browser. So that was an extremely powerful tool because anybody building anything who wanted to touch a human being had to, the delivery mechanism was the browser. So it was very powerful. When it started, I think it was $99. Per year? No, no, we didn't have subscriptions. Oh, right. You bought a piece of software. You went to a store and you bought a box with software in it, CD-ROMs, and you installed it. But at the time, what we call ISPs were also unknown to people. And so nobody had an ISP. You might have cable TV. So some of the early browsers also included an internet connection in a box. You know, internet in a box, I think. You know, Netscape Navigator, internet in a box. And that would give you an offer of you know some number of ISPs because most people never heard of it, never knew about it. You know, cell phones, well, they existed in an early phase, but heavy and expensive, and you have to show a picture of what they looked like. Yeah, I'll include a picture. And yeah, actually, they looked like smaller versions of a landline phone without a wire. And that was pretty much what it was used for, like calls and messages later on. Exactly. Right. The early ones were not literally only calls. So I say that because it's hard to imagine what the world was like. <laughs> you know why it was so exciting. But suddenly you'd spend your $99, you'd get this box, you'd make your choice of ISPs, and suddenly like the web or the internet was available. To you. So it was really crazy. And like you're saying, it was also the shift from it used to be an operating system and you would keep paying for applications, $90, $79. But with this one, you pay $99 and it opens the door to other applications within the application because it's a browser, right? Yes. That's what was very powerful. Yes, exactly. With that one tool, you could get anywhere. And in the early days, of course, nothing charged on the web. Right? That, I think, was one of sort of the joys of the early days. But of course, we see now that sooner or later, you pay somehow <laughs> in some way. But the other thing, I think we still experience this, I mean, sort of the luxury of consumption with no out-of-pocket payment. I think it's become clear now how payment is occurring with data and surveillance and tracking and all of those things. So it's not that it's free. There's a cost, certainly to society and I think increasingly to individuals, but it's not out of pocket. And so that sense of luxury that you can consume so much is it less and less in terms of like solid journalism, but so many other things you can consume. And so yes, the browser is both a product and a platform for the delivery of other content or apps. One of the other main highlights of, of Mozilla and Netscape is when we're talking about how there didn't used to be an open platform and then we kind of started getting that with the World Wide Web. Then eventually you also mentioned that we didn't have open source software, like there weren't really like developers just working on things. But at some point, Netscape is released as open source. They released the Netscape Navigator. Can you explain the reason for this and sort of what this meant? Sure. So when Netscape Navigator was first released, it had close to 100% market share. There literally was nothing else. There was the student-made browser, you know, probably not quite 100, but pretty close. And it was became immediately clear to the dominant player, Microsoft, that this was a threat to their business. 
uh, because Microsoft sold the operating system Windows, so immensely profitable. But the app world, they also own. So if you use a spreadsheet or a word processor, say today lots of people are using Google, but the early ones, you know, Microsoft Word, their word processor were also phenomenally valuable. And the computing power on the back, the server-side products, were also significant product line. So Microsoft did a really quite amazing thing, and they turned the company inside out. And there were a series of internal memos, which were leaked. They're called the Halloween memos. And they're still on the web because they became part of the antitrust trial against Microsoft, in which uh, Bill Gates you know, told the company they were going to change direction and they were going to become an internet company, and they did it. And there's some quotes about choking the air out of Netscape. You know, so it was very clear you know, what the plan was. And they were successful. They managed to turn the company quickly, which is not easy to do. Like That's a real management feat that they did it. I, lots of credit for that. They eventually built a good product, and they engaged in a series of illegal actions. And it actually did get to both the U.S. and European antitrust authorities, and, and they lost in both cases. And that was a tough place to compete against, since they owned everything in the system that wasn't the Internet or the web, and managed well, had great technical talent, built good product, and backed it up with illegal activities. What are some uh, examples of the illegal activities, or what stands out among uh, what happened? Well, the first one that we learned about, which was hard because people wouldn't talk about it. So in that era, Microsoft made the operating system Windows, but others made the hardware, which is a little true in Android. So you would go buy a computer, let's say, you know, in those days, Dell or Compaq, would, you know, the, the big computer vendors. But they had to have a license to the operating system on that device. There's no way in the world you would buy a device without an operating system and somewhere find it. That, just like you don't buy a phone today, then go look for an operating system. So in order to be able to sell their computers, those companies needed to have an agreement with Microsoft, which allowed them to put Microsoft Windows on their hardware as they sold it. And since Microsoft Windows was 97% of the market, you had no choice. You couldn't pick some other operating system because none of the apps would work on it. So you had to have Windows, or you couldn't be in business as a computer manufacturer. And so one of the things that Microsoft did was they said, oh, well, you know, if, if you don't ship our browser, you can't have a license to the operating system. Essentially, you're out of business. And that actually took a long time for us to figure out because at, at Netscape, part of the, the business is uh, still on the enterprise side, it's true, is, you know, you work with the hardware distributors. And all of a sudden, things began getting really weird and it began to be hard to do business. And it took a long time to figure it out because no one would talk about it. And of course, when you have non-disclosure agreements, even if you're making threats that either you know are illegal at the time or court judges are illegal later, it's not that easy for the recipient of that to stand up and describe what's actually going on. So you would just be getting like rejections for your product or something you're like, yes. Yes. And I remember the day, I remember the person, and I remember the day when the sales exec figured out what was going on, right? And, like, it was so shocking to us in that era. You know, I remember it clearly because he was pale. He couldn't believe it. He had to, you know, telling people, telling the CEO, telling the general counsel, like, what, what was happening. It was, a t it was just a stunning idea. So maybe business practices have changed. I don't know. But at yeah. the time, it was just really quite... Yeah. We all had to absorb it for a while because it had taken so many little pieces or weirdo things happening to be able to piece together what was happening. And I think probably the Halloween memos weren't public at that point. You know, that came out later. So that's a probably a good example to use. Yeah. So that this what we've been talking about is what is known like the browser wars, right? Yes. 
Okay. So we have some context. So the question I asked was more of like, what took to become open source and the impact? But yes, to understand that we needed to have some context of, you know, the browser wars and what's happening at the time. But yeah, if you can now mention what it meant to be open source, to release Netscape. So Netscape market share was declining for a bunch of reasons, Microsoft being most of those reasons. (laughs) And so it became apparent that there was no way to be successful in the environment because it, it took a long time for the antitrust stuff to play out. Meanwhile, business goes on, and businesses get accustomed to having you know, a piece of software in the center of what they're doing. And the other thing that uh, Microsoft did is they, in their language, incorporated the browser into the operating system. This was their business practice. And so once it was in the operating system, consumers didn't have to pay for it. So essentially, when you bought Windows, when you bought a computer, 97% of every computer you bought had a browser on them, and it was the browser part was free to you. So they took the money out of the system, too. So Netscape faced two problems. One, market share was declining, and two, the economics were gone. And this was before the current state of the web. You know, so like paying for software was the economic model, and, and that was destroyed. So the problem was, well, how do you produce something where you have to fight over market share, but the money that we used is gone? I mean, some portion of the money that people paid for each copy was used to continue to build and maintain it. And so the realization was had to really change the environment. And at the time, open source and free software were used, certainly in academic circles where they came from, but also sometimes in commercial settings, at least here. I mean, I I was here before Netscape and you know, came across free software and open source software. So deep in the technical part of the world, people knew about it. And Netscape was a pretty technical company with a fair amount of executives with high technical acumen, as well as a fair amount of forward-looking engineers at even an individual contributor level or, you know, all up and down the company, real technical talent. And so the decision was made, yes, we're going to change the environment. With open source, we're going to invite others and set up a setting in which many of us can together create a browser. And then because it's open source, any or all of us can take that browser and use it in our products. Have there been other open source projects or was this just a new idea of like, let's release the code and there wasn't really like the notion of open source? There was, were other open source projects, none aimed consumers. So the largest open source projects were operating systems. So Linux existed at the time, and uh, BSD, you know, Linux more from the East Coast, you know, out of MIT, and BSD is the Berkeley software distribution, so out of Berkeley. And so those existed, and developers knew them. Most consumers would, would never have heard of them. And many open source projects, there were a lot of smaller ones, you know, libraries, which is a, you know, a chunk of code that performs a certain function, and you might use many of them in a significant piece of software. So those things existed. And so it was clear that open source, you would have a license. The license you chose would affect your community. There was some knowledge about how to operate a community that does shared development. There was realization that your bug tracking system should be public for it to work, which is obvious maybe today, but was really 
revolutionary in its time. So open source existed. We didn't make it up, but we did apply it to a consumer product. The conventional wisdom was that open source would be okay for geeks <laughs> or, you know, and developers who could find a library and figure out how to make it work and what you needed to install it and all those things, but that it would never work on a consumer product. And so I think there was a company called Red Hat, which had enterprise products, open source, Cygnus, I think, before that. But not, to my knowledge, both from the time and subsequent, I think Firefox or, or Netscape Navigator in its day was the first significant open source project to aim for a consumer product. So we're talking about how the shares were going down and people are not paying for it because now they get a free browser in their operating system. But why did the team want to release it as open source versus just being like, cool, like we're starting down the business and like shuffling the code? It was like... Let's put it out there. You could have just ended it there and like we're out of business. <laughs> well, a couple, I think there are a few motivators there. I think most companies try not to do that. And for a couple of reasons, you could say maybe some are bad and they should shut down. Some feel some responsibility to their shareholders. I mean, I know that that sounds naive now, but, but there are some companies of which that's true. There's a classic, you know, in business of your business will change and you should evolve with it. So most companies try to do Then I would say for, for many of us, and the reason we stayed was the realization that this sort of obscure piece of software we call the browser was going to be critical to the nature of the internet because there's no reason most consumers would have understood that. And Microsoft was doing its best to make the browser disappear. So they put it in the operating system. They took away a lot of the access to it. Part of their, the, in fact, the court case was the debunking the Microsoft claim that they were totally integrated and that it wasn't, a, you know, a tying because it was one product and, and going through technically those things. But, you know, fewer consumers were seeing a browser or hearing about it. And we, I mean, it was our job. We were in the technology industry. We had been building, we had been pioneers of this industry. So we recognized that for one company to control everything has a pretty fundamental effect on the nature of your experience. Even today, when we, you can see in the news that for the companies that control big portions of internet life, if you don't have much choice, you don't have much influence on the nature of what happens. And so the first phase of that was in the browser phase, which was much more about you know, business for most. But I remember doing many interviews and saying, look, eventually things like my financial records and my health records will be online. This wasn't true then, so it all sounded a little crazy, but, you know, it's our job to look forward. They're going to be online, and I don't want all of my life to go through Microsoft's business model and have to pay Microsoft for the ability to access my life. And to be clear, you know, I use Microsoft then because it was the only one. You know, you could put any company name in there if there's only one. It's not great. But factually, in that era, it was Microsoft. And so we could see that, I mean, it's hard to remember today. It's the only way you could access the network. And so if you controlled that and there was no competition for it, if something came along that wasn't good for your business, you just shut it out. And we could see that happening. On the server side, or the, the capabilities of the web were growing. More and more was possible, but whether a human being saw them or not depended on whether it was good for you know, the business of this, this one company. And so there was a real early sentiment that it was important, you know, and a social benefit and a public benefit and important to the way the internet evolved to break that stranglehold. Mm -hmm. In what ways did it help prevent it from being closed down? Like, well, what are some examples? 
let's say, you know, the idea of adding audio and video appeared. Well, there's a lot of ways to monetize audio and video. And so you can easily imagine if you're one company and you have the choice to say, well, that's great. Now, the, the servers, you can build a website or you can build a service that offers audio or video, but you have to come through me if a consumer can see it or interact with it. You can easily imagine, and it's, it's, it's legitimate business concern to say, ah, well, how does that benefit me? Or how does that benefit my shareholders? If you want audio or video, like that should be good for my shareholders. Let's talk about that. But because Mozilla was there and we have a different, uh, we'd spun out of Netscape or a nonprofit at that point, we have a different point of view. We're like, absolutely. Audio and video are important human capacities. We speak and our eyes are, you know, so important to us. So we should add them and it should be available to everyone. And that, you know, those kinds of capacities shouldn't be all funneled through. Is it good for one set of shareholders okay and so there's a million that's a that's one that consumers see a lot there are a ton of you know formats or file formats that behind the scenes determine that but maybe that one examples okay i know we're uh, running a bit short and we have a hard stop in five minutes but i just had like two more questions if, that, if that's okay okay what i want to ask you now is you studied law and you've been working on licensing and open source and just now you mentioned you know how license can affect the community in open source what are some examples in which a license impacts the community in addition to the one you mentioned about the bug tracking being available are there other important things open source you know and free software in their early days were very specifically value laden and so it's part of the great success story is that they moved into the mainstream and very often they're how one works or they're convenient so free software for example is uh, slightly different than open source software slightly different set of values and some core values expressed different so at one end of the licenses are what are called the MIT license from MIT and the BSD license from Berkeley and they basically say here's some software do whatever you want with it. If something goes wrong, don't blame us. Like, we're not responsible if something goes wrong. And MIT used to say, and by the way, make sure you give us credit. So that's at one end. And today, the modern version of that is the Apache license from the Apache Software Foundation. So it's a very modern license, and it's, you know, it's much more sophisticated than that. But the basic piece is you're free to do what you want with it. At the other end of the spectrum is a license called the GNU Public License. And that license's goal is to say the software is always free. You're not able to do whatever you want. You can do what you want with the software, but you must make a whole bunch of things licensed under the GPL as well. Meaning that if you're going to take the value from our software, you need to share back what you create from it. And so that makes a very different kind of community, which is much more focused on the freedom of the software more than the freedom of the developer and that the freedom that we're interested in, you are required to give back. Whereas at the Apache side, you're not required to give back. And so those are very different. And at Mozilla, I wrote a license which was in the middle of those, which required uh, giving back, but at a much smaller scale, in large part to make it much more understandable and to give organizations and companies greater choice to say, yes, I know what promise I'm making before Beforehand. Okay, I see. And the last question I want to ask you is more on the current state of open source and where it's going in a sense of how much has it changed or stayed the same? I know it's it's an overused term right now and a lot of companies and people are just open sourcing. And Yes. So open source is a fascinating term right now because people will quote open source, unquote, lots of things like ideas or all sorts of things. 
which I think is phenomenal. That the change of mindset that everything is proprietary and I'm going to keep it secret and you're going to pay or give me something to learn to, you know, wow, these ideas should be out in the open and we should be sharing and working together. So one big change is it's become a, a way of thinking, a meme, although I'm not that, I'm wary of that word. And the other piece is that it's a way of working now that's just ingrained in modern development. And so... That's a bigger change that I think it's possible to understand, you know, without delving into history a little bit. So that's a huge success case. And then finally, I think there are many people for whom open source is a, it's a development practice and it's not particularly value-laden. Uh, and so, you know, there are some, I've been part of some discussions where people say, I don't even want to have to deal with a license at all, open source or not. And so that may be fine. You know, in some cases it comes back that bad things are happening and you can't stop it. And so that question of what's convenient and what's the right balance between convenience and having some accountability, it comes up as well. Right. Well, Mitchell, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real treat talking to you. My pleasure.